Hey folks, I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. This is our season all about thrift shops and the unusual antiques that lead us down pathways through Florida's history. Next week, we're using an old viewfinder reel as our guide through one of my favorite towns in Florida as we round out this year of podcast adventures. But before we do, we've got a few short stories to tell you as we approach the end of this season. First, before we get into those, I want to say happy end of the hurricane season to you. Going into this hurricane season, there were many concerns about the power of our oceans as this summer was a notably hot one. After Hurricane Ian hit our coast last year as a devastating Category 5, the state was braced for another big storm like that to hit again. Some storms did generate in the Atlantic 20 named storms total, quote, the fourth highest total since 1950, end quote. Though some massive storms churned out in the waters of the Atlantic, only one storm made landfall in the United States this year, Hurricane Idalia. Idalia took 10 lives as it tore through the United States and made a financial impact of 2.5 billion dollars. The season was predicted, like I said, to be a massive one, and though the rest of Florida missed the extreme impact, the big bend of our state felt the direct hit of Hurricane Idalia. We'll pay that region a visit next year and see how they're recovering from that storm. But the season is over now, and as they do every year, the residents of Key West burned their hurricane warning flags in an event that is sometimes called the Conk Thanksgiving. The photos are a delight, a crowd of crazy Keys residents raising beers and a toast as the flags burn to a crisp. The season was a long one with a sense of dread as the temperatures got hotter, but I'm sure a lot of us will rest easier now that it's over. We'll see you again in the spring. We'll talk more about hurricanes early next year. Hurricane season is over, and our winter season is now almost at an end as well, but now that we are approaching it, I wanted to share with you some of my favorite stories, some some things in my collection that didn't really have enough meat on the bones to become a proper and total story in and of themselves. Just little things that I discovered in a few of the magazines that I actually have bought in thrift stores. A few of these little topics we'll be talking about today include Spaceship Earth in Epcot, an unusual invention for underwater recreation, and a little bit of history concerning Florida's first photographers. All of that discovered through my little collection of weird magazines. Because as we talked about with Gabrielle Khaleesi of the Tampa Bay Times at the start of this series, everybody who collects has their own thing that they are drawn to. As I've mentioned, I've got a massive VHS collection. I always go looking for the VHS shelves in every antique store I go to. I'm also a big Star Trek fan, and if I find a Star Trek pulp novel that I don't already own, I tend to grab those as well. I've got some weird ones. But obviously Florida is my passion. So many of my most random items come from that specific focus. An Apollo 11 button, a few seashells, a taxidermied gator hand. Let me tell you real quick, Gabrielle Khaleesi did an amazing story about alligators and those who work with alligators after those alligators have died. I implore you to go find her article. I'll include a link in the episode description. It is so, so fascinating. Such a good read. But I have got a little taxidermied gator hand that I keep near me and I find uh, troubles some people. <laughs> but it's nice to have a gator around, you know? But I'm a writer and a lover of historical writing, and so time capsules of a specific period based on life at that moment in the form of a magazine is one of my favorite things. We're all just writing about the present as best as we can, right? So the same is true for generations behind us. We have the blessing and the curse of hindsight, and reading old documents, well, they reveal how little we knew back then and how much we probably don't know now. So that is why I collect magazines. Let me get them for you. 
Here's just a few. There are my magazines. Oh man. Some of them came in plastic sleeves. Some of them I've gotten, I've gotten them from all over, honestly. Some of them have some writing on the front. They're all a little worn, but um, I'm, I'm very fond of my magazines. I always, I always try to find the collection in every antique store that's got them because I feel like they're kind of overlooked very often. I feel like they kind of get forgotten and I always end up finding something to love. So that that's really what this episode is all about. I, I buy them sometimes for no reason at all. Sometimes just because I like what's on the cover and they uh, reveal a little story that I like. So for example, here's one. The Movie Screen Yearbook, which I believe is from 1967. The cover features Paul Newman, Elizabeth Taylor, Warren Beatty, the Lennon sisters. Uh, but on the back, there is, of course, a picture of Elvis, his wife, and his baby. Near the back of this magazine, there is a list of up-and-coming actors who just had their first real break that are looking to make it in Hollywood. Here's just a few of the names listed. Jane Fonda, George Siegel, Barbara Streisand, Mia Farrow, Dustin Hoffman. Heard of them? Just a couple up-and-comers from 1967. Anyway, I also picked up a few magazines for their specific cover or for the specific date that they were published. Here's one from Look Magazine, January 28th, 1964. President John F. Kennedy had been assassinated just over two months earlier. So this is like a very, very current magazine about JFK's now widow. The front cover is a somber portrait of Jacqueline Onassis Kennedy staring into the distance. The cover headline reads, quote, Valiant is the word for Jacqueline, end quote. In the top right corner, it reads, quote, What President Johnson faces in Vietnam, end quote. On the back, there's an advertisement for cigarettes, quote, Salem softness freshens your taste with the smoothest flavor in cigarettes today, end quote. And there's a couple in a beautiful field with a cigarette in their hands. <laughs> You know, it is what it is. Another one is my Time magazine from September 19th, 1955. Painted on the front cover is Thurgood Marshall, one of the most important Americans of all time. Twelve years after this magazine was published, he would be the first black Supreme Court justice. Throughout his life, Thurgood was a champion of civil rights in the United States, fighting and winning legal battles related to desegregation, lynching, education, and civil injustice, along with so much more. In 1954 specifically, Thurgood argued on behalf of Brown v. Board of Education, which ended segregation in public schools across the country. By 1955, schools were desegregating, and here was Thurgood's face on Time Magazine, so I had to have this copy. Four years earlier, he was in Florida fighting for the Groveland Four, but you'll have to read about that in Devil in the Grove by Gilbert King. We talked about that on the show. A great read, one of my favorites. I'm glad to have this magazine. It's just a piece of Thurgood's fascinating life, a portrait of who he was in the midst of this incredibly important time in his life. But someone owned this magazine before me, and they had a newspaper clipping that was hidden within. I don't know why. The newspaper clipping is a letter to the editor to an unknown newspaper. The sender is from Tampa, and her sentiment is extraordinarily racist, blaming the civil rights arguments of the 1950s on President Dwight D. Eisenhower. I'll spare you the venomous rhetoric of the writer, whose name was B.B. Lever Luce, but she calls racial equality a dream to be woken from. Whoever owned the magazine before me clearly thought it was interesting to put these documents next to each other. A racist sentiment about the perils of equality slipped in a magazine showcasing one of equality's greatest champions. A stark contrast hidden between the pages. But my oldest magazine, 
It's from 1948, July 5th of 1948. The oldest magazine that I have in my possession until the one that I just bought shows up. We'll talk about that in a moment. This is a Life magazine. Running from 1883 all the way to 1972, Life magazine was a hugely popular magazine throughout the massively transitional period in American history. Their focus on imagery was hugely important to them, and as photography became more of a means to tell stories and report stories, Life's ability to print these massive photographs became one of their great strengths. They've contributed some of our most important historical images, including the famous photograph of the sailor kissing a nurse on VJ Day back in 1945. They helped create a lot of the visual language of the 20th century in America, so I try to grab a copy of Life whenever I find one in a store. This one, from 1948, isn't all that thrilling in terms of its content, I just bought it because of how old it was. There are some incredible photographs from the 1948 Republican National Convention in Philadelphia where Thomas E. Dewey was chosen as the Republican candidate. Dewey would go up against incumbent President Harry Truman, who would win by only four points. But I didn't discover that there was a Florida connection in this magazine until after I had purchased it and brought it home. Just a few pages into the magazine, I discovered a surprising bit of Florida history. Let's open to it together. Goodness, it's maybe page five or page six, but there's these full spread black and white photos. It says, swimmers have fun with diving fins. Let's talk about those. There are some truly unusual photographs here of women in classic 1940s swimming costumes, white onesies with frills on them with swimming caps. The photos were taken at Florida's iconic Silver Springs one of our most popular tourist attractions in the 20th century. The models are skimming along the surface or deep underwater, holding onto a bizarre device. I'll describe it as best as I can. It is a smooth wooden plank about the size of a cutting board. It's made of mahogany and it's two inches thick with handles on the side. And those handles are attached to a sort of Y shape and a rope that is then attached to the end of a boat. These women are holding onto these planks for dear life. And this plank, it is called the porpoise diving fin. There's some lovely photos of the women on the beach demonstrating the fin while lying on the sand, but once they're in the water, the women appear... <laughs> the women appear to be in hell, if I'm being honest with you. They look so uncomfortable. Their, their faces are like their mouths pinched shut and their eyes squinting and just being holding on for dear life to these things. I found some more photos online and they are cracking me up. These photos show these women diving under the surface, which is what this fin was apparently for, quote, for underwater swimming and exploration, end quote. So you hold on to it and then you can kind of, you know, duck the fin downward and then it will bring you underwater and you can see stuff underwater, I guess. So you can like snorkel behind the boat without having to propel yourself with your feet, which I suppose is a good thing, except for the fact that when you're at the surface, you're just kind of being pulled through the wake of the back of the boat. There's one photo of these women that have these beautiful curls in their hair, classic 1940s hairstyles. Two of them look perfect, smiling beautifully. Their hair is in place. They have lipstick on. They look fantastic. The water is roaring around them. They're, they're just whipping through the water behind the boat. But the third woman in the distance, her hair is soaked. She's clearly been dunked under the water. And if my assessment is correct, she looks like she's screaming, hey, at the guy piloting the boat. She looks so mad. She's like dunked under the surface. It's so funny. With the other two looking immaculate and her just being like... Pfft with this fin pulling her, it's it's hilarious. But I discovered something. 
The name of one of the models, the one who is pinching her mouth and diving under the water, her name is Nancy Stilly. I found her photo from this apparent product showcase and her name is actually featured next to these photos. I, I searched for her all over and I found even more photos of her throughout Florida in the 1940s, modeling on a beach, laying on a bed of oranges, posing next to a woman who is sticking her head through a map of Florida. After doing some searching, I found an obituary for Nancy from 2010 that details more of her life. Nancy Stilly was born in Pittsburgh and moved to Winter Haven, Florida as a kid, where she eventually became a water ski performer at the iconic Cypress Gardens. She was actually featured on an earlier cover of Life magazine in 1947, showing off her incredible water ski skills. One ski on either foot, she is gliding through the water, smiling into a camera. I actually found a copy of that Life magazine and you bet I bought it immediately. Well, the same year, in 1947, Nancy won the Florida Citrus Queen pageant, which brought her to the Miss Florida pageant where she was first runner-up. And those water ski skills did not go to waste after the pageants. She taught more prospective water skiers after her. An entire life that I'm glad I just stumbled onto. A pageant queen, a Florida model, and a water ski professional. I'm sure she'd much prefer to be coasting on the surface than getting dragged along in the wake of a boat as she was in these showcase photos. As for the designer of this strange product, his name was Winslow Harrison Case, quote, a Detroit ad executive, end quote. Unlike Nancy, Winslow is gone from the historical record. I can't find anything featuring his name except for this article. All that remains is his bizarre invention tied to a Floridian queen. So that magazine, it was bought by me in the first place due to its age, 1948. This magazine, however, let me grab it. This magazine right here, I actually bought it because of its cover. I adore the person photographed on the cover, the great... Walter Cronkite. It is another Life magazine, though this one is from 1971, this time featuring Cronkite in a yellow polo shirt behind the wheel of a boat, the ocean swirling behind him. It's a surreal photo if you know Cronkite or have studied the footage of his life as I have. If you've seen him being the extremely important and steadfast anchor of the CBS Evening News, to see him so casually piloting a boat, it's it's remarkable. There's photos inside of him as well playing with his son, just hanging out at his home, showing that he's more than just the tight man in a suit who's running the news every single night. He was a person with a life behind that desk. Walter Cronkite is the ideal news anchor, one of the most iconic in American history. You've certainly seen his face. If you've ever watched the broadcast of the Apollo 11 moon landing, you've seen Walter Cronkite, his mustachioed face breaking the usual neutrality of journalism as he smiles and laughs at the sight of human beings, American pilots, walking on the moon. He takes off his glasses, he chuckles in disbelief, he rubs his hands together, he cannot believe what he's seeing. That human response is what makes him so essential. Those astronauts left Florida's shores and arrived to the moon, and Cronkite was in awe. He joined CBS News in 1950 after being recruited by one of the greatest journalists in American history, Edward R. Murrow. Cronkite got his first show in 1953 called You Are There. Here's a clip of his iconic last line to every episode. What sort of a day was it? A day like all days, filled with those events that alter and illuminate our times. And you were there. I mean, listen, I, I, I love the way that my episodes end, but I don't think Drink More Water holds up to that. 
Anyway, Cronkite took over the CBS Evening News desk in 1962, which he led until 1981, nearly 20 years defining some of the most important eras of American history. As a fan of journalism history, Cronkite is an icon, my favorite journalist, a man who knew the importance of his job, but also knew that he was a person just like you were. And sometimes he would very subtly and very honestly let you know that he was feeling something about this. But for the most part, he was your guide your steady hand through Vietnam, civil rights, the war protests, and into the 80s. Cronkite was the lead of those stories. So to see him so casually in these photos, it's a delight. Now, naturally, as I often do when I find things like this and think about people who I love, I often wonder if there is some Florida connection. I mean, he's on a boat in this photo. Maybe it's in Florida. I don't know. Though he did vacation in Florida, he never lived here and didn't seem to have much of a specific connection to us besides his trips to the Kennedy Space Center during NASA's moon launches. There is, however, one connection to him through an Orlando attraction where his iconic Apollo 11 broadcast can still be seen. A decade after the Magic Kingdom opened here in Orlando, bringing Walt Disney's Florida project to fruition after years of planning, Disney opened a second park based off of an idea Walt Disney had. They called it Epcot. The way that Disneyland has Sleeping Beauty's castle over in California, and the Magic Kingdom has Cinderella's castle at its heart, Epcot 2 has an iconic structure in the middle, Spaceship Earth. If you have somehow never seen Spaceship Earth, look it up. It is easily my favorite thing that Disney has ever designed, a silver-white sphere made of triangles that glimmer in the Florida sunlight. Nowadays, they've added some of these beautiful LEDs all over, and now the ball glows with sweeping light throughout the evening. It's unbelievably beautiful and extremely simple, which is part of what makes it so iconic. I know I use that word a lot, but the Epcot ball, as it's often called, is very iconic. I also, frankly, adore the ride inside of Spaceship Earth. You coast through vignettes of human history, learning about how communication developed from language to written word to the internet. It's relaxing and educational, and it's somehow one of my favorite rides, just an easy way to kick back and enjoy a dark environment and some fantastic animatronics. And when you reach the 20th century as you glide through human history, images of radio stations and movie theaters showcase how communication changed through that century, until we arrive to a typical 1960s living room, where Walter Cronkite's Apollo 11 broadcast glows from a small screen. It's an homage, I think, not just to that iconic moment, but also to Walter Cronkite's own history connected to this ride. You see, though Dame Judi Dench has been the narrator of this ride since 2008 and Jeremy Irons was the host before him, Walter Cronkite was the second host of Spaceship Earth. This was part of a fascinating movement in Epcot that tried to bring more recognizable faces to the parks in the mid-1980s. Because Cronkite actually wasn't even the original voice, he was the second of four. The first voice of Spaceship Earth narration was Vic Perrin, a journeyman actor who provided the voice of the narrator in the science fiction anthology television show The Outer Limits, but he wasn't exactly a distinctly recognizable figure. According to an article from the blog titled Jim Hill Media, which is dedicated to history about Disney, its history, and other parks, Epcot was trying to upgrade soon after it opened. I'll include a link to Jim Hill Media's article about this because it's very, very interesting. But here's what they had to say. Michael Eisner, the CEO of Disney at the time and an all-around fascinating figure, he was trying to replace Vic Perrin as the narrator in order to bring in a voice that Americans would really remember and recognize. 
Who better than a man that was dubbed the most trusted man in America, Walter Cronkite? The story goes that Roy E. Disney himself, the nephew of Walt, went to Martha's Vineyard where Cronkite was spending his retirement years after leaving the CBS desk. There he was invited to take over, not as the narrator of Spaceship Earth, but instead as the host of the Disney Sunday night movie. Cronkite declined the gig. That's a lot of work, and it would require him to be on television every week. A new, regular television position wasn't exactly what Cronkite was looking for after retiring from being on television for many, many years. Nearly 30 years. Good lord. What if, instead, they gave him a script to record in a day or two, and Cronkite could be an important part of Epcot's future? They were already creating a film to be screened in the park starring Michael Jackson called Captain EO, and by the end of May 1986, Cronkite's new version of Spaceship Earth would open, which would kickstart the presence of quote-unquote celebrities in Epcot. More comedians and actors would be added throughout the rest of the 80s and even into the 90s, which is definitely a story for another day, but the most trusted man in America was the tentpole. Cronkite's voice had been in American televisions for decades, and now he was in the heart of of Spaceship Earth in Orlando, narrating our human history the way he always did. Here is a clip of Walter Cronkite's Spaceship Earth narration. For eons, our planet has drifted as a spaceship through the universe. And for a brief moment, we have been its passengers. Yet in that time, we've made tremendous progress in our ability to record and share knowledge. So let's journey back 40,000 years to the dawn of recorded history. We'll trace the path of communications from its earliest beginnings to the promise of the future. I love these photographs of a newsman on vacation and a diving beauty queen because they get to be so illuminative, not just about the time period that they were taken, but people themselves. And it just brings me so much joy to have these photos so close so I can always look at them and, and I have them in living color, you know what I mean? But I collect a lot of travel brochures and those are riddled with gorgeous photographs of our state showcasing Florida in a very specific way. Because we've talked a lot about tourism in this season so far. A lot of antiques in this state are tourist imagery or based on tourist imagery. Pennants, postcards, maps, brochures, anything to invite someone from out of state to come enjoy the glorious colors and sights of our state. The sort of thing that was a tchotchke 50 years ago now is a cherished piece of Florida antiquity. I love it. But the photographs that wrote these early narratives, their photographers have not been remembered the way that they should be. The whole purpose of these photographs is that Florida is captured so beautifully that you, the viewer, you just have to go see it for yourself. Don't just trust the photo. Go see it with your own two eyes, right? Capturing the natural beauty of Florida was not a difficult task on paper, but the style that developed over the years has an amazing story and shows how Florida has been shown through the lens of a camera for the last 170 years. So let's go back. The first photographer I want to showcase real quick, Samuel Abbott Cooley, a Union soldier for the 10th Army Corps. He was part of a special department in the Union called the Department of the South, which was designed to organize the parts of the Union that occupied regions and cities in the Confederate states, including Florida, Georgia, and South Carolina. This is definitely a story that we will dig into and come back to another time because it's very, very interesting. There was also a Department of the Gulf, which I can't believe I've never heard of things. People say to me all the time, do you ever think you're going to run out of topics? If I 
I've been making this show for five years, and this is the first time I've locked in on the fact that the Union had a Department of the South and a Department of the Gulf that focused on Florida during the Civil War. No, I'm never going to run out of things to talk about because I still haven't covered all of the obvious things. We haven't even done an episode about Wikiwachi. Anyway, the Department of the South, right? That, that was created, and Samuel A. Cooley was a part of the Department of the South. Samuel A. Cooley brought a primitive camera into the 1860s South and captured what is believed to be the first photographs in the state of Florida. The earliest is suspected to be of Union soldiers having taken the Castillo de San Marcos in St. Augustine. Back then, they'd renamed it to Fort Marion, and there are some incredible photos from that fort at the time. Men in the elaborate garb of the Union Army, some posing for the cameras, others slouching against the coquina walls. Truly fascinating. Cooley then brought his camera onto St. Augustine's famous George Street and took photos of the residents there, which shows just how remarkably similar George Street looks to this very day. If you look at these photos that he took in the 1860s, they look like George Street. If you look at George Street today, the similarities, it's its not hard to see. A little bit more tchotchke shops on George Street nowadays. Anyway, it's incredible to see St. Augustine not just during the Civil War era, but also in the years before Henry Flagler would arrive and change the shape of that city altogether. Cooley's early photographs are incredible, and his old photos often are, they're a bit haunting. Then comes another photographer, William H. Jackson, a photographer known for his place in capturing the earliest images of the American West after the Civil War. Also a Union soldier, Jackson actually fought in the Battle of Gettysburg, but after the war, he made his way out west to Omaha, Nebraska, where he would begin his travels into the frontier. Doing surveys and meeting the native peoples of the land, Jackson began taking photographs of the world around him. He joined a survey that brought him into what would one day be Yellowstone National Park, where he captured the first images of our first national park in 1971. Quote, he served as official photographer for the U.S. Geological and Geographical Survey of the Territories until 1878, end quote. Showcasing the splendor of America became his calling card, and his photographs of the West remained the first indelible images of the land that became our national parks. And here comes Henry Flagler yet again. While Samuel Abbott Cooley's photographs showcase St. Augustine as a town before Flagler's influence, once Flagler left his mark on the town, he needed someone to showcase the town he had brought new life to. Quote, In the 1890s, Jackson was commissioned by Henry Flagler's East Coast Railroad to produce a set of images to promote St. Augustine as a tourist destination. End quote. What a surprise. Flagler had brought hotels and luxury to St. Augustine, but how would anyone know to come to the city if they didn't know what they were looking for? Clearly, Jackson's artistic eye took over because, quote, while many of the photographs were designed to promote the grandeur of St. Augustine and the appealing attractions of the area, Jackson also sought to present a more intimate view of the city, documenting residents going about their daily lives, end quote. A whole collection of his photos are currently at the Leitner Museum in St. Augustine, a building originally built by Henry Flagler himself. Indeed, the photos do show the beautiful structures built by Flagler, including the Ponce de Leon Hotel, but some just show people wandering the streets, carriages trotting by, life in a city that still looks like itself 130 years later. Jackson's goal was to advertise Florida as a tourist destination, sure, but the people caught his attention just the same. And last but certainly not least is a photographer whose photographs are most recognizable based on their style alone. 
He is a man named John Hind, a photographer dubbed by Vice, quote, arguably the most famous photographer you've never heard of, end quote. I'll include a link to this Vice article all about Hind, which is how I discovered him in the first place. His photographs are absolutely remarkable, deeply saturated photographs of buildings on the water, folks in shimmering bathing suits, palm trees against the blue sky, skyscrapers in Miami, sunsets in Palm Beach, and a flamboyance of flamingos. His style is highly commercial and extremely colorful, almost like a painting through his lens. Hind was born in Somerset, England in 1916. By the 1940s, he was involved in the circus. Yes, the circus. He worked in publicity, advertising the traveling circus, and his wife, Antonia, was a trapeze artist. What a story. By the 1950s, he was working as a photographer, including taking some truly amazing photographs of circus performers in the 1940s. Photographs include a cage of lions with trapeze artists doing their work above that cage, and a strongman lifting his weights, performers getting into makeup, and even local kids helping unpack the circus. While his Florida photographs are exceedingly colorful and gorgeously pristine, his circus photography is almost sort of like he's trying to capture the moment, almost like he's he's capturing real life. They're dark and moody, there's shadows passing across them, they're trying to capture a little bit more of real life, focusing on the work of a circus. His style clearly would change based on whatever he was photographing throughout his life, his ability to showcase many different worlds in their own distinct styles. Take a look at any of his 1960s photographs of Florida and you'll see how much it was the blueprint for our tourism life in the mid-20th century. They are so polished, perfect, colorful, designed, exactly the sort of thing that would draw anyone from all over to come see if Florida really was that vibrant in real life. If Cooley presented Florida before Flagler and Jackson presented Florida as Flagler left his mark, Hind seemed to show Florida as something new, a tourist's dream in magical technicolor. These artists shaped our identity through the lens that they chose to shoot through and what exactly their frames revealed. We did a little bit of that ourselves today, shifting the focus on names that we've never heard before. I've never heard of some of these names. Maybe Walter Cronkite is a new figure for you. I am glad to shift the frame for you today. If it wasn't for these magazines and brochures that I discovered throughout these thrift shops, I maybe would have never found some of these names at all. I've taken a great fondness for just grabbing something that catches my eye and letting it be a guiding light into new questions, new stories, new names and faces, things I never would have found on my own. And we get to celebrate these big, important lives in a spare minute. Whether that's the life of a beauty queen of yesteryear, a trio of photographers capturing Florida's appeal, or the most trusted man in America himself. So go buy yourself an old magazine, go to a thrift store, see what's there, trust your intuition, find something that catches your eye, buy it for a couple bucks, and see what lies inside. I bet you'll find something you've never heard of before. Something not brand new to the world, but something brand new to you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I am so glad that you are here. If you're brand new to the show, if this is your very first episode, welcome. I'm glad you're here. Thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It means a lot to me, and it helps the show grow and find new people to bring into the show. You can also find the show on Instagram and Facebook at WFMPod. I'm going to be posting a ton of pictures on WFMPod. I sometimes find myself forgetting to post photos, but there are so many from this episode that... 
maybe there's going to be too many. <laughs> there's going to be a lot of photos. You'll see. Trust. So go check out WFM Pod on Instagram to see all of the photos. Or you can send me an email at WFMPod at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you. I have also included some links in the episode description to some of the articles that I used in the research for this episode because there are a ton of different rabbit holes I found myself down. So go check out that article about Walter Cronkite, that article about John Hind, and and so much more. So go check out those links. Go read Gabrielle Khaleesi's article about the alligators. There's so much to read. There's always more to find in a Wait 5 Minutes episode. All the music used in this episode was originally composed. I do not own the rights to the audio that was used in these episodes, but I wanted you to hear Walter Cronkite's incredibly important voice. So go check out those clips. I do not own the rights to them. Go check out the original videos at the links in the episode description. Thank you. All right, folks, next week is our last antique episode, and the week after that is our holiday special. But first, I took a trip to Sarasota, to the Ringlings Museum, and boy, Let me tell you, I fell in love. I'm going to tell you all about the Ringlings Museum, the history of Ringling Brothers, and this incredible little viewfinder that I used as my tour guide. Until then, be good to yourself, be good to others, drink more water, and go gator and muddy the water. I will see you next Monday. Have a very happy week. See you then.